Well, it's good to be back anyway. And uh, I just wanted to say before I started that I've taken the liberty of putting some books out on the table. They're books that I have written. I wondered what I was going to do with my life when I turned 79. And so I started writing books and have written six books since then. And uh, over the last five years and... God has used them and blessed them and they're there if you'd like them. There's one which is a daily devotional book based pretty much on the Gospels called Encounter. There's another one on the Gospel of John called That They May Be One. There's uh, one on the recovery from child sexual abuse uh, which is an issue that I've dealt with a lot over the years and uh there is another one on conflict in churches. Of course, you wouldn't have that here, so I'm sure you won't need to read that book. But it also is a, a very helpful book when it comes to understanding uh, how conflict is created and how we go into conflict and what to do about that. And then uh, there is this book which came out just a few weeks ago called Now That Is the Church. I guess after 60 years in ministry, or 64 years in ministry, I've, um, I look back on the church and I'm challenged by what I see. I see in the Western church uh, diminishing congregations across the whole country, churches closing down, one major denomination saying that in the next 10 years they'll no longer be viable. And I think... Why is that? When Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples and uh, baptise them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, why hasn't that resulted in multiplication? Why doesn't it result in greater influence in the community in which we live? So I went back to the Gospels and went back to Jesus' teaching and went back to the Apostles And I realised that he said a lot about the church, a lot about what the church was meant to be, that we no longer, in a general sense, over all the churches, we no longer do those things. And so it's a challenge to present and future leadership to listen to what God is saying about what the church should be like right now in this day and age. So... Uh, It's there. All the books on the table are for $20 and you're welcome. Well, I suppose when you listen to the Bible reading, you thought, oh, gee, and we're going to cop it today. It sounds all very negative and, and so on. But I really picked that for a very special reason. The reason is it gives me an excuse to talk to you about the book of Ephesians and to put it in the context of the rest of the things that Paul says. And when he gets to this part, it makes so much more sense when we understand what he's already said. So we're going to take a really quick trip through through the epistle and then we'll get to that passage. In chapter 1, verse 1 to 15, if you've got your Bibles, you can follow me through. He reminds them of who Christ is and the benefits that they receive from coming to him. It's a wonderful chapter, isn't it? Chapter 1 and talks about Jesus being 
the fullness of God. He talks about God having revealed to us his mysterious plan through Christ. He talks about God's purpose to bring Jews and Gentiles together. He talks about God loving us and choosing us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. So he, he, he reminds us who Jesus is. And I want to say to you this morning, we need constant reminder of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is God. He is God in the flesh. He is God, the Son. And everything that the Father is, the Son is. And everything the Son is, the Father is. Sometimes we familiarize Jesus. We, we sort of bring him down to the way we can understand another human being. But he became human not to show us humanity. He became human to show us divinity, to show us who God is. And when we see his love, we see his power, we see his grace, we see his wisdom, he is demonstrating to us who God is. And coming to know Christ means coming to know God the Father. Coming into relationship with him. Coming into intimacy with him. Not just knowing God well enough to come to church and sing songs, but to know God well enough to be connected to him every moment of the day. To be able to relate to him as our father and know that he is relating to us as his children. And then when we get down into verse 16, Paul starts to pray for the people in Ephesus and, and for us. And uh, he says that he bows in prayer and he prays for them constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. What a wonderful prayer. What a wonderful prayer. Not your knowledge of the Bible, although it's good to have expanding knowledge of the Bible. Not knowledge of doctrines or dogma or theology, but knowledge of God. To be able to say, I know him. I know him. And when you know someone really well, you, you know you can trust them. You know that their love will never fail. You know they'll never let you down. That's, that's how we know God. And that you might know him and know the spiritual wisdom that he gives and the insight that he gives. And he said, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he's given to those he has called his holy people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Why does he use the word light? Why does he talk about us being filled with light? Because that doesn't really relate to any other experience we as human beings have. We can relate to water of life. We can relate to bread of life. What does it mean to be filled with light? It's a reminder that when we become Christians, we move from... Walking by reason and rationalism alone to walking in revelation. That the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us and he reveals truth to us. 
He reveals God to us. He reveals light to us. It's really important to understand that this is a supernatural God and we are in a relationship with a supernatural God and he works through us and in us supernaturally. I um, remember the story of a, a new pastor who had gone to his church and preached his first sermon and preached a very powerful sermon on the Holy Spirit. And when he was going out, when the people were going out the door, a lady said to him, Welcome, Pastor, but I do hope nothing supernatural is going to happen in this church. <laughs> and and some, sometimes we get, we get like that. We, we get to a place of being comfortable in what we know about God and comfortable even with what God knows about us. But when it comes to moving outside, beyond knowledge and reason, all of which is good, into revelation, we're afraid of that. We're afraid of that. When God speaks to us and, and gives us instruction through his spirit, we're often afraid of that. But we don't have to be afraid because this is the nature of the relationship that we are in. It's a relationship with the supernatural God. And when we pray that somebody... Uh, we'll find Jesus, we're actually praying that the Holy Spirit will come supernaturally and, oh, I haven't got it on. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. I hate to think I wasted the last two minutes. Thank you. When we're praying for someone that they'll come to know the Lord, what are we doing? We're praying that the Holy Spirit will convict them of sin. Isn't that a supernatural act? And we're praying that God will give them an understanding of who Jesus is. And that we're not praying that they'll read their Bible, we're praying that they'll come to Christ. Now if reading the Bible is part of the journey for them, that's wonderful. And if we can get non-Christians reading the word of God, that is great. But they come to Jesus through a supernatural transformation carried out by the Holy Spirit. We don't cease from supernatural experience after we've been converted. When we see God working in our lives, we are witnessing his supernatural power. Last October, um, I woke up one morning, got out of bed and collapsed on the floor, paralysed all down my left side, my face was paralysed and uh, I'd had a stroke. And, and Julie started to pray immediately. I, I don't remember what I did, I think I was unconscious. but um, And God prompted her to act quickly. The ambulance was there in... 10 minutes and uh, but the marvellous thing was that there's one ambulance in Melbourne that's equipped for stroke has a doctor has a, a scanning machine has staff on the ambulance and that, that 
ambulance that day was meant to be on the western side of Melbourne. And they got an emergency call before me to to the east and it was there to pick me up. And by the time I got to the hospital, they already had discovered where the clot in the, the brain was and they, within a few minutes of me getting to hospital, had removed it. And as you can see, I'm really well. And, uh, and I just know that God took over at that moment of time. Now, I don't know why he, he did that. I, I don't, I feel humbled by that. I just know that God did that. That it was, it wasn't humanly possible for me to be in that ambulance as the way things were planned. God is powerful and I believe that. I believe he answers prayer. I believe he answers prayer not through circumstances, but through supernatural intervention in the plans of men. That's what I believe. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here when he talks about them understanding who God is. He says, I also pray that you'll understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him in the place of honour at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. The same supernatural power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that dwells in you and I. Isn't that marvellous? It's the same power we have access to through faith. Knowing that God who loves us dwells within us all the time. All the time. And his dwelling brings revelation and it brings hope and faith. So then we move on to chapter 2 and Paul starts to talk about um, this a little bit more. But he begins to talk about the relationship between uh, between Christians, those believers, those who've come to Christ out of a Gentile background and those who've become Christians from a Jewish background. And he, he talks about Christ having brought peace to us and bringing us together and cancelling all the rules and regulations and enabling us to live by his indwelling spirit. He talks about together we are one body reconciled by Christ together and with God. I love the fact that he introduces the concept of the body of Christ. What is that body? It's the church. It's the church. The church of Jesus Christ is the body of Christ. He is the head, you know this, he is the head and we are the body parts, right? We are the each a part of the body. None of us are more important than another. We have the same connection with God as each other and we are part of his body. But it does mean that we have a responsibility to give priority to function as a body. A body that does not function, a body that does not reproduce, a body does, that does not reflect the, the, the glory of God, 
is, is a, a sick body. We need to recognise that we are part of that body. So when I encourage somebody or we love somebody or we minister to somebody who has need, we are functioning as a body. When we share Jesus with the people in our, in our lives, we are part of that body. And God is working through his body on earth. He has a lot more to say about the body in chapter 4. But here he, he, he changes the, the picture a little bit and he talks about us being a temple as well. I love the picture of a temple because a temple is a huge building standing on a hill and nobody can miss it, isn't that right? And, and when it lights up, everybody knows it's there. And it's a presence that nobody can ignore. And that's what the church is meant to be. It's meant to be a presence in the community that nobody can ignore. Because of the love and the grace that pours out of that church, because of the way people love each other, because of the way they share Jesus with every with everyone, that's what it's meant to be. Very visible. Light in a dark World. And then we get to chapter 3 and uh, he talks about the church as God's mysterious plan. He says this was God's plan right from the beginning. And he talks about the way he worked with the Jewish nation and now he brings the Gentiles together and they are one church. No one superior to the other but connected together by their relationship in Jesus he talks about God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its variety, in its richness to all the principalities and powers in the world. That we are meant to be a force in the world. Not just a, not just a passive, passive organisation, but an organism living pulsating and demanding attention and presenting God in a, a powerful way. We must not be silent. And as I look back over 64 years, I, I realise that the church I inherited 64 years ago as a new believer and a new pastor has not really changed all that much. It was silent then. It could live in a community without making an impact. And often the church is doing exactly that across our city and across our nation. It's silent. It is not being noticed. It's not being noticed because it's not bringing this, this, this radical message of Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? The message is radical. It's meant to be disturbing. And it's meant to be hope-giving. But how are we communicating that to our community? One of the things I love about the church we go to today is that almost every week the pastor reminds us that we, we are to be Christ's presence in every place. We're to go into our homes, our workplaces, our neighbourhood, and be Christ's presence there. And you know what that has meant as people have done that? It's meant that they are in an uncomfortable place sometimes where they, they share Christ in a, 
a workplace or they share Jesus to, to friends who, who are not interested and they, they sometimes have to pay a price for that. But the, the result of that is that every month in our church we have baptisms. Every month we have people come to Christ and be baptised. Next Sunday I believe there's something like 12 people being baptised and that's about the normal that we see every month. God is at work because people are being Christ in in every place. The church is meant to be noticed. Christians are meant to make a difference because we have the indwelling God within us. Then we get to chapter 4 and and Paul talks about us being called by God into one body and he talks about there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. How he's given us gifts, how he's given the church the gift of the gift of the apostle, the gift of the prophetic, the gift of the evangelist, the gift of the teacher, the gift of the pastor. We are meant to embrace those gifts, pastoral gifts, teaching gifts, evangelistic gifts, prophetic gifts, apostolic gifts, the gift to see the need for evangelism and to pursue that. That The church is meant to exercise all of those gifts. It's not about somebody being a pastor or somebody being an apostle or somebody being an evangelist. It's about the church being all those things, exercising those gifts in the wider community. In fact, one of the the problems the church has had over the years, generally speaking, is that we decided that, that some people in our church are apostles and some are pastors and some are prophets. But what's being talked about here is the gifts of the prophetic, the gifts of the apostolic, the gifts of teaching, the gifts of pastoring, the gift of evangelism. We need to embrace that. We need to discover who in our churches have those gifts and how we can encourage the development of those together. That's why I love... I love the fact that that we get the as we get older we get the opportunity to mentor young young men and women and to be able to point them to their own gifts and encourage them to use them. He then he goes on and he talks about us living as children of light. Now now it makes sense, doesn't it? In the context of all the other things that he has said to them, it now makes sense to say now your response is to live as a child of light. Your response corporately is to live as children of the light. You have been transformed by the power of God. You are no longer driven by your sinful desires. You are filled with the Spirit of God. And then he he, 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 he takes the two cultures, the culture of the unbelieving world and the culture of the Christian community, and he, he compares them. And he says, when you compare them, you realise that the culture of the world is very much 
made up of minds full of darkness, people wandering from the life that God gives them because they've closed their minds and hardened their hearts. Sounds like a description of Melbourne, doesn't it? Maybe a description of Montmorency. But within that community of God-rejecting people, there's the church, the church community. What should that look like? And that's what he talks about from verse 17 on. He talks about the fact that we've learned from our relationship with Christ that the truth comes from him and that the Spirit has renewed our thoughts and our attitudes. All through the New Testament, we have verses that remind us that the transformational work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit is to change the way we think. One of the things I know as someone who's done a lot of counselling over the years is that there are many people whose minds have been scarred by the past. And many of the thoughts that people still wrestle with in their lives have come from the woundedness, the woundedness of the past. I meet adults who say to me, you know, I'm not worth anything. All I, all I can do is work in the background. Who told them that? Where did they get this belief that they are worthless, that they are unworthy? Who taught them that? Somebody, something or somebody taught them that. Some experience or some person taught them that. But the, the thought, the reality is that thought still rules their mind, still rules their heart. There are people who can't trust other people because of their past experience. There are people who's, who are full of fear because of past experiences. God will transform those minds to minds that are centred on Jesus and that know his love and know his freedom. God heals us. He heals the wounded spirit. He restores our lives. Remember that. Remember when you're praying for people that they might be transformed in their minds that you are praying something that God has come to do. It's not something that he might do if we ask him. He wants to do that and he wants us to believe that. So he says, you, 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 you must not go on doing the things that the world does because you are a, you are a different community. You are a different group of people. You are God's people living in a dark place. And the Ephesians would understand what that means. They knew what darkness was. They knew what it was to be persecuted by the, the Romans. They knew what it was when they became Christians to be persecuted by the Jews as well. But, but they knew that the way to deal with that was not so much preach on the street corner, but the way they lived, the life they lived, would be different. It would be opposite to what was around them. Don't, don't get hooked in to the way the world sees, the way non, non-Christians see the world. 
don't get hooked in even to the downside where you some Christians are feeling very burdened and very concerned about the future. I want to tell you God's in control and you are his light in a dark world. You're on his side. He is indwelling you and using you. And then having said that, he says to them, do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. He's already told them that the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee of their salvation. And now he tells them that again. And then he gives them some instructions, and I have preached this for a long, long time, but it's really important that we say it again. He tells us to to examine our hearts, examine our minds, and see whether there are blockages to God. And he names some of them, right? He says one of them is called bitterness. Bitterness. Sometimes we are bitter toward people. Sometimes we're even bitter toward God because we prayed something about something that was really important. Didn't happen. God didn't turn up. And we've never really got past that problem. And we've become dry and bitter in our spirit. Sometimes we become bitter towards certain groups of people in society because we were wounded by them. He says, if you've got that, it's a blockage. What you have to do is is deal with it. Get rid of it. And he said, another one of them is rage. Now, you would say to me, well, we don't have rage, but you, you know that lots of people do, don't you? You only have to do the wrong thing on the road and you'll find out that there's a lot of people with rage. Or you only have to have a disagreement, even in a church, and rage rises to the surface. It's sanctified rage. It's not violence. Nobody punches each other. Well, not often. But it's a rage, it's an anger, it's a hostility toward certain opinions and towards certain ideas and to certain attitudes. How easy it is to to watch the television even and see reports of a a lifestyle that that we think is anti-biblical or we reject it as a lifestyle and to say negative or angry things about the people who are involved. He said, no place for that rage. Put it away. And then he says, calls another one anger, and you would say, well, anger is the same as rage. Well, rage is a, a, an open hostility. Anger could can be something you never express. Anger can be something that comes out in other ways, like criticism, or cynicism, or sarcasm. Because what we do as Christians is we often just stuff our anger down inside. We internalise it rather than deal with it. 
And you can't internalise anger without it hurting you and hurting other people. Eventually it rises to the surface. It seeps through the pores of your personality and it begins to impact other people. It's a blockage, he said, to the spirit-filled life and we should get rid of it. And then he says, instead, instead, be kind. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So, getting rid of those things is about replacing them. Replacing them with an attitude of kindness, allowing God to show you what his kindness means, how kind he is to us through what we've celebrated this morning and the the communion. Kindness. Sometimes kindness can be costly, but it's always, it always brings fruit in other people's lives. And it brings fruit in our own lives because it draws us closer to our Father. Put on kindness, put on tender-heartedness. He talks about forgiving one another. That anger that I talked about before is usually caused by unforgiveness. It means that somebody has wounded us and we have never forgiven them. We've never set them free. And we've never set ourselves free. Do you know forgiveness is not for the person who's hurt you? Forgiveness is for you. Forgiveness is God's gift for you. And it's a double-edged gift. He's given you forgiveness so that you don't have to bear any shame, any, any shame at all in your life. He has wiped it all out. He's paid the price for it through Christ and he's given you forgiveness. But then the other side of that is that then he he says, now you forgive others. Forgive yourself and forgive others. So how can we do that? The very same way that God has done it for us. We forgive others on the basis of what Jesus has done. Do you know he hasn't died just for your sin? but he's died for every sin that's ever been committed against you by someone else. So on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you can forgive them because the price has been paid. You don't have to keep on paying the price for the rest of your life. You you can set them free because Jesus has done it all. Does that make sense? So this Jesus who has come to live in us has come to lead us into a new life, a new community and a new sense of freedom. Use that freedom to glorify God and to to know his peace and presence in your life every day. Let's pray together. I want to invite you, as I always do, to make your own response to God.
God has been speaking to you through his word and you've been thinking things, feeling things, reacting to things. What do you think God has been saying to you and what would your response be to him? Has he, has he reminded you that you have become a little bit apathetic about who he is and what he's done for you? Is he calling you to a, a life of praise and rejoicing that seems to have lost in the cares of life? Then, then respond to that. Tell him that you want to know that love in a real way of your life that you need to deal with the individual and the person living corporately in the body in the most effective and powerful way and that you will know the joy of being connected not only to God himself, to the people of God, in a very special way. Thank you, Father. Father, we just thank you for your word, thank you for your power in our lives, thank you for your grace, thank you for your love. Thank you that you're always, no matter how long we've been a Christian, you, you are always taking us deeper, if we are willing to go. You're always wanting to reveal new truth to us, not just reminding us of things we've known, but opening up new vistas of understanding about your grace and your love. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you've never, you've never tired of trying to, to lead us deeper into truth. And we pray that today will be one of those days we take another step toward knowing you better and understanding what you have done for us and understanding what you want to do in us and through us in the days ahead. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.